1: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicles political podcast. I'm Joe Garifoli, the Chronicles senior political writer, and today our guest is a co creator of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. We cover a lot of ground here today, starting with who she thinks Governor Gavin Newsom should appoint to replace Vice President-elect Kamala Harris in the Senate. We also talk about how Joe Biden is doing to fulfill his promise to create the most diverse administration ever. And we talk about the Defund the Police movement and what it really means and where it goes from here. It's another really good conversation with Alicia about race and power and politics in California and beyond. Alicia Garza, from your home in Oakland to my home in Oakland, welcome back to It's All Political.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back with you.
1: And this is, and as you describe Oakland as what, the center of the known universe. The
2: center of the known universe. That's correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We we should be just doing this in person if we weren't on lockdown, if we weren't on uh, uh, coronavirus lockdown.
2: I know, right? Exactly. I know people would fight with me about this uh, answer here. But as somebody whose family has, you know, been in San Francisco for four generations, it's no shade to San Francisco, but Oakland's really doing something.
1: Absolutely. All right. Let's let's talk about we have so much to talk about here. Let's jump right into it. The, the the unemployment rate, as we know, in America may be high, but there are a couple of big political jobs that are open in California right now. That's right. One is the job of a U.S. senator. That's correct. Um, this week, Ro Khanna was on this podcast, this very podcast. And he said that the front runner is Secretary of State Alex Padilla, who, if Gavin, Governor Gavin Newsom were to pick him, would be the first Latinx person to serve in the Senate from California or roughly 38% of the population is Latinx. But you have other thoughts about who Newsom should pick and I wanted to hear who who you think he should pick and why.
2: Absolutely. Well, let me just start off by saying, you know, one of the things I think is so unfortunate is that in some ways this conversation can be framed at times as, you know, Black communities competing with Latinx communities. And I don't really see it that way at all. And in fact, if it was up to me, I would say we need to increase the number of Latinx people in the U.S. Senate and we need to increase the number of Black folks in the U.S. Senate. And so- Here's what's real. Uh, You know, out of 100 members uh, in the US Senate, only 26 are women, even though we are more than half of the population of the United States. Furthermore, when you look at those 26 women, only four are women of color. And until recently, only one was a black woman. So that means that as we um, celebrate... Correct. As we celebrate the historic uh, election of uh, Kamala Harris being the first black woman and the first Indian American woman, and frankly, the first woman to ever sit in this seat of vice president of the United States, where, of course, all eyes now are on what is going to happen to her seat. And, you know, at the Black to the Future Action Fund, we have certainly gone on record by saying that we think that that seat should be filled by a black woman and i want to talk a little bit about why i think that women all over america really understand what it's like to have people who don't share your experiences legislating on your behalf. I mean, this is how we get all of the assaults and attacks on reproductive justice and freedom. This is how we get all of the assaults and attacks on economic justice and economic parity. And frankly, it's because people who are experiencing that are not making the rules. That's just a fact. Uh, I think the other thing, though, which I find interesting is that women all over America also have the experience of being passed over for positions, particularly decision-making positions that they are qualified for. And right now, we have at least two Black women who currently sit uh, in in our in United States Congress, um, who would be excellent for that position. And two of those women are from the state of California. One is uh, Representative Karen Bass, uh, coming out of uh, Los Angeles, and of course, you know, our hometown hero, uh, Representative Barbara Lee. And besides both of them being incredibly competent and qualified Black women, Uh, both of these women, I think, really represent the values of our state and have represented the values of our state incredibly well uh, in their roles in the U.S. Congress. And so for me personally, um, I think that it's curious when I have been you know, paying attention to the list of people that uh, Governor Newsom has been rumored to be choosing from. It is a long list of men. And I don't think that that is acceptable. And look, even the First Lady of California said that gender equity and gender parity uh, is a California value, and it was to be a California priority. And the governor has chimed in on that and said that he agrees that gender equity should be a priority in California. And so What an incredible opportunity to demonstrate those stated values by placing one of many qualified Black women who are already currently serving in Congress to the seat that is being vacated by uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris.
1: And there's also, I mean, lately I feel like the California Political Jobs Bank here, uh, because there's so many openings coming up. Uh, Javier Becerra, the Attorney General, is uh, you know, if he's is confirmed, will be joining the Biden administration. Um, do you have any feelings on on that position? Uh, who should and this is the largest uh, uh, Justice Department in the United States outside the federal DOJ. If you don't have a person, who what ideals should the next California's next AG represent?
2: You know, um, I don't have a person in mind per se, but I will say this: um, we are just in the midst of an incredible reckoning around race and racial justice, and in particular, racial justice as it relates to the criminal system. And, you know, I think that what is important here is that somebody is placed in that seat who deeply understands the ways that racism, not just as, you know, the notion of, you know, people doing bad things to each other, but the notion of rigged rules that have uh, overpopulated our prisons and jails with people of color, and in particular, Black and Latinx people, Uh, in particular, rules right that continue to criminalize Black and Latinx people in particular throughout their lives and impact their ability to... um, to literally support themselves economically because the punishment goes beyond the jail time. It actually stays with you for the rest of your life. That's Mm -hmm. a person, the attorney general for California uh, needs to be somebody who deeply understands that and needs to be somebody who has a clear record and vision for how it is that we are going to unrig the rules that have been rigged against so many of us for so long.
1: Is part of the reason the the rules are rigged is that the, the the leadership, both here in California to some extent and nationally, is, for lack of a better word, old. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we'll all be there someday. But uh, Speaker Pelosi, still, you know, very sharp, of course, but she's eighty, and most of the top House leaders, uh, all white guys, are are in that ballpark too. Senator Feinstein is about 87. I don't know if you saw the recent New Yorker piece that came out that uh, was raising questions about how sharp she is. Is this time for this generation to sort of bow out gracefully? Uh, is, that, is that the only way, or is that one of the ways that ch- real change can happen or can it happen with them in power?
2: Well, I, I might take a different perspective on it. I mean, there is certainly value to having experience in leadership roles. And I think one of the major challenges that um, the Democratic Party has faced, uh, that California has faced, and really that power faces overall, is that power tends to be exchanged among like. And frankly, uh, it it tends to get passed down amongst the same group of people. And so regardless of kind of age, you end up having kind of the same circle of people making rules. And that is not good for democracy. Uh, What I know is that every time I think about who's making rules in this country, I think about that meme. I don't know if you've seen it circulating around, but it's the meme that visually depicts the last 46 presidents. Yes. (laughs) And every single one of those presidents is white except for one. And it's a very startling visual of exactly how power is concentrated in the hands of a few and how that impacts the lives of so many. And for me, I really want to see this state and this nation governed by um, the people who comprise it. And what we know is that demographics have deeply shifted in this country, and white people are no longer the majority. But they are the majority of decision makers in this country, and they are the majority of decision makers in this state. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question of, what are we going to do to shift that? I mean, we just finished having a conversation about this U.S. Senate seat, and you actually mentioned Dianne Feinstein, who I think is probably close to the end of her career. I would say that the person who gets appointed to that seat should probably be a Latinx person, right? Because absolutely, Latinx people uh, comprise 38% of California's population, and California should be represented right, by the folks who comprise the the population of the state. I absolutely think that. But bigger than that, It's less to me about making sure that we check off the boxes, and it's more to me about making sure that who is making decisions reflects the people who live in a place and reflects their experiences and reflects their values. And that has been the disconnect in terms of power and decision making since the inception of this nation
1: and that that uh, that's exactly what I want to talk about with some of the the uh, the picks that uh, president elect biden has made president elect biden again uh, another white guy number 4 uh but I, I want to bef- before I do that I want to throw one of my uh, media colleagues from NPR under the bus for something I heard earlier this week. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I like how you just named it. You're like I'm going to throw you under yeah, the no, bus you know, right this minute. Na- you know
1: why I named it? Because I hate when people say, quote, the media said this. I'm going to I'm throwing NPR this I'm not going to name the reporter but They know who they are. Um uh And they were talking about how if Biden chooses a black person to fill one of the quote unquote big four positions in the cabinet, secretary of defense or state or treasury, the attorney general, they said if (laughs) if Biden chooses a black person for one of these jobs, there will be less pressure to choose a black person for the other top jobs. Like, okay, we've checked the box, as you said, let's move on. What does that say about how the political establishment and for that matter, you know, the corporate world Thinks of hiring when it comes to hiring people who are not, uh, you know, cisgendered white uh, white dudes.
2: Well, it says that power wants and needs to replicate itself in order to stay in power, and really, what we're seeing here is a struggle between interests. You know, I too, like the rest of America, watched Joe Biden uh, on that stage during uh, his acceptance speech. And I watched him, as everybody else did, say that he owed his victory to Black communities. Uh, yep. Similarly to Vice President-elect Harris. She said it was Black people who pushed them over the finish line. And I would say that that is true. And so it is um, unfortunate uh, to see those kinds of dynamics play out. But what I can also say is that it's not going to happen without a fight. And you know, ideally, what we would be doing here... Right is, um, not only just helping to push that campaign over the finish line, but really taking on these questions of how are we going to shift governance from the way that it has happened under the previous administration, and. This incoming administration has an incredible opportunity to distinguish itself from the previous one. And thus far, I'm not seeing that. And I don't think that the rest of America is seeing that. And frankly, I think that has implications if... Uh, Vice President-elect Harris decides that she wants to run for president in four years. Uh, My take on this is that uh, the president-elect should really be looking to uh, uh, make the ground fertile for the person who comes after him. And what I know, and from looking at the tea leaves, I think, you know, we've got two years to really win real things for real people. Very few people in this country care about these arbitrary distinctions, (laughs) frankly, between Democrats and Republicans, because most people know that they're not getting their needs met, and that's what they care about. And then, of course, in four years, we have the very real threat of a resurgence of either Donald Trump or somebody more palatable than Donald Trump but actually more dangerous. So I, I think it's important for this administration to take a long view and uh, I'm not sure that they're doing that right now and it may not be them. it may be the people advising them, but either way, uh, there is still at least 30 days uh, to turn the tide.
1: Yeah, I wanted to loop back on something you said you said there. It will it, it will have an impact on on Kamala Harris. It should she decide to run, you know, if, if Biden, you know, he's talked about being a transitional figure. We don't know if that means just he's one one and done and and then uh, turns it over to to Harris. But what does that? What does that mean? How would it impact her?
2: Well, I mean, honestly, I have to say. Um, everything that President-elect Biden is doing right now is um, setting the stage for the person who succeeds him. And it is uh, putting a taste in people's mouths about what they can expect. And the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, part of the reason that Joe Biden was able to go over the hump, and in fact, all of the reason, had to do with Black people that helped him out along the way, whether that be Representative Clyburn and his support uh, coming out of South Carolina, or whether it be Kamala Harris joining Joe Biden on the ticket. Uh, All of these are instances of uh, the promises that this administration is making to the people whose votes they sought. And what Joe Biden, I think, needs to do right now is to start make to make good on some of those promises. And a lot of what I'm seeing, although not everything, but a lot of what I'm seeing is a walking back of the things that he said he was going to do so early on. In- like, like
1: specifically, what what's he walking back? What are you...
2: Well, in particular, I mean, again, he said uh, that black communities were critical to his victory. And so, Mm. you know, when we then look at. Uh, who he's appointing to positions of power, he's not actually demonstrating that Black people were that important to his victory.
1: What uh, specifically, who are you happy about and who are you disappointed about?
2: I mean, we're still shaping up everything, right? But, um, mm. you know, today we heard that Susan Rice for domestic policy, uh, you know, I, I think we've heard uh, Marsha Fudge for. HUD secretary, all of those things are important. Uh, And then, of course, I think we're having a big disappointment in terms of the secretary of agriculture. Uh, That's an important uh, issue there. And I know there's a lot of folks up in arms about the kind of snubbing here of not just Marsha Fudge, but the old snubbing, right, of Shirley Sherrod. I mean, there's lots to play out here. I don't...
1: By the the agriculture uh, uh, secretary-designate... Tom Vilsack, who who was the agricultural secretary when uh, when uh, Sherrod uh, during that controversy in the Obama administration first first time. That's right.
2: That's right. So, look, I'm not a fortune teller and I cannot predict the future. But again, (laughs) um, what I can say is that it is important over the next 30 days not just to check the box, uh, but to reward the communities that did push you over the finish
1: line. Uh, Policing is generally a local issue. But what would you like to see the administration focused on when it comes to reforming criminal justice? And and specifically, what should they be and and Congress be be focused on?
2: Well, I think there's a few things. Uh, Number one, uh, accountability and transparency. And you're absolutely right. Policing is so very much. A local and state issue, uh, but the tone for how local and state uh, policing happens does get set at the federal level, and in particular, oversights of those cities and states uh, is done at the federal level. And what we've seen over the last four years is a very intentional gutting of the Department of Justice, and in particular, the Civil Rights Division, which you know oversees uh, jurisdictions and departments and uh, is, in essence you know, an imperfect watchdog uh, uh, over those departments. And so we need to see that strengthened and we need to see it uh, become more robust. And unfortunately, we'll be digging ourselves out of a hole because uh, uh, President Trump and then, you know, followed by Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and then of course, you know, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr have dug a hole so deep um, that it's going to take a lot of work to get us back to where we were. And frankly, that wasn't enough either. I think the other piece about uh, federal oversight in terms of transparency and accountability, 100% has to be about changing the rules around qualified immunity. What we're seeing time and time again, through countless videos and images of Black people being murdered by the folks who are sworn to protect and serve them, is that there really are very few accountability measures that are in place. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are loopholes in holding officers and departments accountable when they commit crimes in our communities. So that is something that has to be addressed as well. But bigger than that, I have to say, um one of the things that is really really important is that at the end of the day, what we are asking law enforcement to do is not actually their job. And we cannot continue to have law enforcement respond to you know mental health crises and have people end up dead. We cannot continue to have law enforcement respond to homelessness when actually there's nothing that law enforcement can do about homelessness except criminalize it. Uh, we have to make sure that we are reallocating funding uh, into critical infrastructure needs and in our communities that frankly have been decimated over the last 30 years through republican rule so i would say that those are some of the things immediately that we can address and you know in, in every community of color or black community or poor community all you have to do is step outside to understand where money needs to be invested and frankly it, it's not rocket science here right i mean we need to make sure that there is accountability when police officers commit crimes in our communities. And we also need to make sure that our communities are strong enough, right, and have the resources that we need to live well.
1: We'll return with more of my conversation with Alicia Garza after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: And now here's more of my conversation with Alicia Garza. Some of the you, you, some of the things you referred to about reallocating resources are often get. Tagged with the shorthand, defund the police, which is uh, a a misnomer in some ways. Um, I recently did a long interview with former Governor Jerry Brown, who used to be mayor of our city of Oakland, Mm -hmm. and I asked him about this.
3: What does that mean to you? Let me tell you you the political facts of life. Surveys indicate that 20% of the people want to defund the police. 80% don't. Most people in my business who are successful go with the 80% not the 20%. So I know that's not a big reason for you uh, virtuous people, but I just want to give you the, the context. So they're not going to uh, go too crazy on this. Is there room for improvement? Yeah. Uh, I think I think uh, people are mentally uh, ill. Uh, people, There's a lot of work that, um, d- d- that don't require a gun. That, that is true. But uh, I found in Oakland, uh, I work well with the police. Now, the police got in trouble when I was mayor, and they, we signed a consent decree, which I don't know if I knew what I knew mean now. Probably, I wouldn't have signed it, as a matter of fact. But that consent decree, which is in its 15th year, I believe, could be said. It is still year, in effect. It's still yeah. in operation. And they have a, a monitor who makes, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. This thing costs a lot of money. And uh, it, it never ends. So for people who want to do this, realize that, It's going to take you 15 or 20 years. So I think we need collaboration. We need wisdom. We need some experts here to try to work it out. They're not going to abolish the police. People, uh, you know, the murder rate's been going up. Uh, There's violence out there. Uh, We need police. Can the police be trained better? Yes. Can there be greater accountability and supervision? Yes. But uh, we're all going to have to work it together. So there's been a—look, the guys are dying. We shot them not good, um, I, that's caused real anger and, and deep uh, feeling. So the police are gonna have to own that, deal with it, the police leadership, but there is a role uh, for, for good policing in this society.
1: Now, this is someone who's been elected four times as governor of California. What does this tell you about the challenges of, of talking about this issue when this is the mindset of not just the political establishment in California, but the, but the Democratic political establishment when it comes to changing the criminal justice system?
2: Well, uh, I mean, I have a couple of questions about those comments. So number one, what is his business exactly?
1: What is Jerry Brown's business?
2: Uh Uh-huh. What was the... His reference to his business, that it, people in my business—no, no, my
1: business, my business being political, like in the political business.
2: Oh, well, that's interesting because I don't see politics as business. I see okay. politics as rulemaking, <laughs> and rulemaking, right, is a—it's also mm-hmm. uh, a part of a democracy where uh, people are literally saying right, um, that what we're doing right now is not working. And so legislators and politicians and elected officials are not CEOs. Uh, They are representatives of the people. And so their job, actually, uh, is to figure out how to solve problems. And, you know, one of the things I think is so interesting about this debate and that gets missed all the time is that in all of this hoopla about words and sayings and slogans, uh, Nobody's really addressing where they stand on the policy, and mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, we haven't heard, um, you know, from a former governor Brown, I should say. Uh, yes. We haven't heard from, you know, President Elect Biden. We didn't even hear from former President Barack Obama. What is their position on what we need to do to address the obvious challenges uh, in the criminal system, and? Frankly, I think that a lot of these conversations end up being a smokescreen for, I'm not going to take a position because I don't plan to do anything. And I think Mm. that that is unacceptable. And I think that it's- Obama did have
1: his his 21st century policing commission. They they touched on some of these issues,
2: correct? Mm, uh, Look, (laughs) we have been body camera to death. We have been dated (laughs) and studied to death. And, you know, one of my Mentors always said to me, and I take this with me everywhere I go, that task forces are the place where good ideas go to die.
1: Now, <laughs> yes, this, this is often true. At yes. the
2: end of the day, again, um, we need to hear from our political leaders what solutions they are bringing to the table. Uh, you know, it is often movements or, you know, whatever Governor Brown called uh, the millions of people uh, who have been involved in this movement, uh, mm-hmm. not just, you know, in this country, but across the world. Uh, I don't remember the term that he used, but I can certainly say this. Uh, we have put on the table concrete solutions uh, that, that you know, could address the enduring problem of unaccountable and ineffective policing and they have not and so now the ball is in their court they need to put something on the table or else we should really just stop talking about it cuz we're not really talking about much we're we're saying well that won't work but they're not putting on the table what will. So that's actually where the rubber hits the road. And that's the conversation that I'm interested in having.
1: Oh, I wanted to get uh, take quickly, because I know we we have uh, just a few more minutes together, um, uh, on one of the ballot measures that failed in, in November here in California. And that was the one that was going to bring back affirmative action. When this was introduced over the summer during the the, the the peak of the racial justice movement that was going on, I thought politically, this was this is gonna be a surefire winner, but it wasn't. And a lot of people I spoke with, voters and pollsters and activists, said the language, the ballot language was confusing. They didn't know quite what it was. Why do you think it didn't pass? And did it say something larger, or was it a language thing or or what?
2: Well, I think um, I think a lot of things. I mean, (laughs) California propositions are notoriously confusing, (laughs) and so that is a real thing. Uh, You know, as as a regular voter in California, my whole life, I can say it takes an army to figure out (laughs) what these ballot propositions are actually saying. Uh, But bigger than that, I mean, California is a huge state. And I often say that we are not just one state. We are like three or four states in one. And, you know, um, we are very diverse politically, just as we are uh, demographically. And uh, what I think is that um, California, like this nation, uh, is also having a reckoning around race and racial justice. You know, affirmative action has been under attack uh, ever since I was in middle school. Okay, and I'm turning 40 next year. So just to give you, just next month actually. So just to give you a sense of how long this has been a fight. And ultimately, uh, I I think that the narrative around affirmative action, frankly, has been won by the conservative movement. Um they have, you know, literally framed race and racism as something that is harming white people. And in particular, you know, <laughs> affirmative action uh has been framed as something that is keeping white people out. And Frankly, when you look at affirmative action, what you'll see is that it actually benefits white people, too. But until we're able to get control of that narrative and actually do the real organizing that we need to interrupt the fairy tales that the conservative movement has been telling people for 30 plus years, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. But yes, ballot measures like that will not win because what is winning is the false story of who belongs and who does not.
1: You're focusing of your time now at the Black Futures Lab, which is where you're building, uh, you're focused on building uh, Black political power. Uh, Barbara Lee, uh, uh, our, our congresswoman, has has talked uh, to me uh, a couple of different times about this sort of disconnect between the progressive leaders, progressive community, and the Black community. Why is this? Uh, and what can be done about it? And what what are you doing about that at the lab?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question. And I love her so much. She is such a bridge builder, somebody who can move in so many different spaces. And we've been really honored to work with her over the years. Uh, I'm one of her biggest fans. You know, she's absolutely right. For too long, Black communities have been used as symbol as opposed to uh, valued for substance. And You know, when it comes to progressive organizing, whether it be, you know, anywhere, really, uh, you know, often we're replicating the same dynamics of our larger society where uh, the inclusion and the expertise of communities of color and black communities in particular uh, is an afterthought. And in fact, it's usually seen as, you know like we were talking about earlier, checking off the box, as opposed to deep and sustained engagement and leadership in progressive coalitions, understanding that you cannot have a progressive coalition without the full and robust participation of Black communities. And so at at the end of the day, that is what Black to the Future Action Fund is working on. It's what we're working toward. Uh, What we know is that Black communities are incredibly powerful. And We are tired, frankly, of uh, uh, being seen as symbols and not uh, having the substance of our lives addressed. And so for us, it feels really important to make sure that there is a political home for Black communities who want to see the dynamics changed. Uh, And in particular, these dynamics of the rules being rigged against our communities for generations. And we are going to be a robust part of the progressive movement, whether or not progressives want it. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, what is important to us, right, is that our experiences and our vision and our values are front and center as we're talking about how power is distributed, how resources are distributed and how decisions are made.
1: Uh, you also have a new book that came out. It came out right before the election, so I, I think maybe a lot of attention was elsewhere. But uh, it's called *The Purpose of Power: How We Come Together When We Fall Apart*, and it's a story of your, your two decades of activism before the christening of the BLM movement. And uh, you know, this is such an extraordinarily fractious time in American politics, even more than usual. And what are some things that people of differing views can do to come together?
2: Hmm. I love this question. And thank you for mentioning the book. We're so proud of it. And, you know, it it, it has been three years in the making. And in so many ways, it's right on time. Uh, I, You know, I think the first thing that we do need to make sure that we're doing in this very fractured environment is making sure that we are looking for the things that connect us without requiring that we be the same. And that's something that I think people have a very hard time with, right? We, we look for people who think like us. Uh, we look for people who talk like us. And frankly, we look for people who look like us. But uh, the America of the next century actually has to be different. And the fact of the matter is um, we all come from different places, but we're all in the same boat. And so we have to deeply understand where we've come from, how we got here. And then we have to build the kinds of relationships that aren't just about what is similar about us, but that finds its strength in our differences. And once we understand that, I think we can build the kinds of coalitions, not only that can last, but the ones that people don't expect. And frankly, coming together across our differences helps us to build the kinds of coalitions that are much, much more powerful and effective, because they can't be divided in the typical ways. So that would be my offering for for how I, I think we can start to come together. But really, I wrote this book to, you know, unearth and really demystify how change happens. I think, you know, we are told so many fairy tales about change and how it happens or why it doesn't. And there's lots of people in this country right now that want to see their lives better, but they don't know where to start. And so what I say is, you know, number one figure out what it is that you care about. And this is a moment to care about something. (laughs) If you find yourself caring about absolutely nothing, that's the first place to start working on because there's a lot going on that that is impacting all of our lives. The second step, I think, to this is to find other people who care about the things that you do and join them. And then, of course, the third step is not just to join them, but to grow your group wider than you've seen it before. Uh, Those, I think, are some of the steps that we need to take in weaving this country back together again.
1: Lisa Garza, thank you so much for your time. I hope that the next time we speak, we'll be on the other side of this pandemic, in person in the town.
2: That is the hope, my friend, and you know from your lips to God's ears.
1: I hope God's listening. That would be honored. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I'd like to thank you all for listening, and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Alicia for joining us today on the podcast. I'd like to thank Taya Francesca Price for producing today's episode. And as always, a shout out to our great theme song, That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter who you think Newsom should appoint to the Senate, it's all political.